Welcome to the Clifford Charles podcast, where we discuss the biggest issues and trends faced by businesses and the people who work with them. My name is Kate Gibbons, and today we're talking tech with journalist and author Misha Glennie, whose book McMafia was developed into the hit TV programme for the BBC. I'll be discussing with Misha the ever-evolving threats associated with cybersecurity and the role we all need to play in protecting ourselves and the organisations we work for. So, Misha, we've just had the privilege of hearing an hours-long talk from you on the topic, and I must say, everybody around me was absolutely terrified. Um, I wondered if you could give us the potted version in five minutes. Well, essentially, the problems that we face are born of the fact that uh, technology is accelerating and developing at speeds and at a scale that we've never seen before. And it is very, very difficult to keep up with. It's difficult enough for people who are involved in the cybersecurity industry to keep up with it. But for ordinary folk like you and me, who are lay people, essentially, it's impossible. Um, and so we have to learn ways to communicate better about the dangers that we face in cyber and if and what there is anything we can we can do about them. We have seen in the past couple of years the harbinger of mass attacks on what is referred to in the trade, as it were, as critical national infrastructure. So if I go back straight away to April and May 2017 with the WannaCry virus, <clears throat> what was interesting about the WannaCry virus which, of course, uh, uh, as is well known, attacked the NHS here in the United Kingdom, was not the malware itself. It was actually um, a very unsophisticated piece of malware. What was interesting was how that malware was delivered into computer systems, and it was delivered by uh, a... Um, mechanism called Eternal Blue, which had been developed by America's digital spy agency, the the NSA, the National Security Security Agency, which they then very foolishly um, did the equivalent of uh, leaving it on a kitchen table. It was like a loaded gun on a kitchen table, and a passing Russian hacker picked it up, pocketed it, and said, thank you very much, and then used it to unleash WannaCry. Now, if you look at WannaCry, we know that here in the UK it hit the National Health Service. What people are not so aware of is the fact that in Germany it hit Deutsche Bahn, the railways. In Spain, it hit Telefonica, the biggest communication uh, network in Spain. In China, it hit the banking system and ATMs in particular. And even in Russia, it hit the interior ministry. So what that was doing was a relatively low-level form of malware hit health, communications, transport, finance, and governance institutions. So if that's what a low-level piece of malware can do, what happens if you get a really sophisticated operator, and they exist all over the world, who decide to take out your water system or your electricity system? You have got to have defences in place to deal with that, but increasingly, as we see the transition from uh, 
from human-based computer technology to machine-based computer technology, i.e. the Internet of Things, so-called machine learning, and the introduction of artificial intelligence into computer networks, it is ever more difficult for us to keep track of actually what's going on. So I'm wondering why human beings have been so optimistic about this technology and why they didn't, um, as they pursued its um, opportunities, also consider some of the risks and put some balance, checks and balances in place as they went. Well, there were a couple of novels written in the 1980s, one by William Gibson, Neuromancer, which was very important, which actually uh, created the word cyber. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, they basically, and indeed Asimov has done this as well, they laid out the problems of the technological, the sort of technological revolution as it was coming in computers. But literature, although it's a very wonderful thing, um, very rarely changes people's um, attitudes and decision making. And what technology looked like at first, if you remember the late 80s and early 1990s, there were a lot of proselytizers, um, mainly on the west coast of the United States, but elsewhere as well, who were saying, this is going to democratize the economy, it's going to democratize politics, it is going to put power into the hands of ordinary people. And although they were a little bit slow on the uptake, states, big organizations, corporations, criminal groups um, looked at what was going on uh, for the first five or ten years of the Internet and said, actually, these people are right. This is the most powerful tool that we've ever seen in the history of communications. And therefore, it's far too important to be left in the hands of ordinary people. And so the Internet, while it still remains to some extent a democratizing tool, is also a very powerful tool for repression, for control, uh, and for experimenting with systems, the outcome of which we aren't sure of. So for me, the really most telling thing, and in a way the, the, the pivotal moment between that early optimism and the extent of the threats we face now is the financial crash of 2008. And the reason why I say that is, is that if you look back at 1929, the Wall Street crash, it took about 14 months after the Wall Street crash in October, November 1929 before there was the first major banking casualty, Kreditanstalt, in Austria in January, February um, 1931. With the financial crash of 2008, every financial, major financial institution in the world was looking down the abyss of economic and financial and social collapse within four days of Lehman Brothers going down. Why was that? Because what the whole speculative process had that had been based on up until 2008 depended upon was algorithms that created and multiplied and spread around um, uh, collateral uh, mortgage obligations and credit default swaps so that no single bank knew at all what its liabilities were 
and they lay solely in the realm of technology beyond human control. And it was when that happened, that four days that it took almost to bring the entire economic system down in the world, that I realised that we were running out of control with the technology and we need to start stepping back. The problem is most people's engagement with technology is one of increasing convenience, of fun, of dependency, both uh, procedural and psychological and social, uh, political and uh, economic. And there is this rush to create, to innovate, which you can understand. But what is not taken into account are the security implications, the social implications, the economic and the political impl implications. And with the advent now of artificial intelligence and machine-to-machine -machine learning, we're just moving into an, an era where we've got to be really, really careful. So I'm wondering whether care is possible. I've always been a fan of podcasts, so it's great that we're doing one. And one of my favourite podcasts is Melvin Bragg's In Our Time, and he mm. has a programme on cells. Mm. and how life couldn't start until cell walls were created. And we also had a futurologist here um, a few years ago called Richard Williams, who, mm. Wilson, sorry, who predicted that you were going to have to start putting barriers down in the internet. In other words, you were going to have to enclose portions of it so that it couldn't run rampant. And indeed, it feels like a great big criminal soup at the moment. I mean, this might be a good idea, but do you think it's a possibility? Well, to an extent, it's happening. There's something which is referred to as the balkanisation of the internet. Um, and that is, is that each country is defining its own internet, what you can do in China or in Iran or in the United States, uh, and what you can't do on the internet. So you have a sort of sub-battle about uh, the Chinese trying to restrict things with its so-called Great Firewall of, of, of China. Um, you have the United States demanding that there is better access um, uh, to China in particular, but also to other countries as, as well. So each nation state has a different perception of what the internet should be, yet the internet itself is inherently global. Uh, and so you have these clashes playing out all the time, and there are cell walls forming, um, but they're always going to be incomplete walls. So, for example, when it comes to North Korea, North Korea has a very, very undeveloped uh, internet network um, because of the fact that its citizens aren't allowed access to the internet. And yet that network, which is very important in terms of criminal activity, is penetrated by the United States and other intelligence agencies. So you can't ever be feel that your cell wall is un, unbreachable. So we have a rather sort of Frankenstein-like construction of the internet at the moment, and, and that's not going to change. Frankenstein famously had no mother, 
And you touched in your talk on the fact that women are poorly represented amongst, I mean, in this case, the criminals who operate the internet. But we know that's a wider issue. I think you said that only 11% of women um, appeared in the cybersecurity industry in the UK. In the but there were 17% in the US, which still doesn't sound very many. I wanted to explore that because it is a very powerful way of actually being the opposite of democratic and in the poorest countries women are literally prevented from engaging in the economy further by virtue of the fact they for example their husbands keep the computer or their husbands require them to give them the code which allows them to access money um i wondered if you could explore why you thought women weren't so conversant with this technology and um whether there was any cause for hope that things might change well, in in terms of the cybersecurity industry, I'll just start with that briefly. It's because it emerged as a very male culture. It emerged as specifically uh, a culture that revolved around technology, um, digital solutions to problems to do with cybersecurity. And uh, once men become entrenched in a culture like that, they are, tend to be very reluctant to allow women inside. You also saw in things like the gaming culture that because of the fact that the technology was developed by men, uh, when, it came to, when it came to the development of games, they tended to be aimed at a male audience, hence the predominance of, of shoot-up games um, and, uh, and action-fighting games and so on. And it took a long time before you started seeing games being specifically developed uh, for women, and male games continue to dominate massively, whether it's FIFA or whether it's uh, World of Warcraft. Uh, and so on and so forth. Of course, there will be a minority of women who play that, but it is very much, it's very much a minority. So this entire culture of technology tends to have uh, a male, a male face to it, and I believe this is because the nuts and bolts of the technology tend to be controlled uh, by men. So it's it's not just in the individual sectors, but the actual people who run the internet, because the internet has an infrastructure which needs to be managed and needs to be engaged with, uh, those are, um, uh, you know, in the region of 90% men. And so so it's not surprising that the output of this technology is going to be focusing on male requirements rather than female requirements. Whether that's going to change or not, I don't know. There are movements within tech industries to increase female participation, and there are a lot of... Um, uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, support groups um, that women have created within the tech industries to try and increase their influence and, and their role. And uh, to my mind, they need to be supported wherever possible. Because of that thing, I've become convinced looking at the Internet that uh, men's responses, and there have been some very interesting psychological experiments with this, or experiments at psychological psychology departments, particularly in the United States. At Emory University, they did a fantastic one about uh, using uh, computers and male and female volunteers on um, game theory. And the uh, results were women would, uh, again, between 80 and 90 percent of women would would seek to succeed in game theory through cooperation. Uh, 
and 80 to 90 percent of men would seek to succeed in game theory by defeating the opponent and have it being solely victorious uh, uh, in the game. And so there is there's unquestionably, in my mind, a sense that women seek to operate, to work through cooperation more readily than men do. I'm not saying that this is a a, a definite thing, but it's a trend that we've seen in technology, and it's a trend that, frankly, one can observe in everyday life as well. So there are, of course, benign uses for the internet, and there are women who are shopping online, running whole household families, have created businesses. There's lots of good stuff going on. But the reason we were all wonderfully terrified, and it was like going to a horror movie in the middle of the day, was because um, you have come into contact a lot with a male, by the looks of it, and... Um, big men um, who are criminals and um, so for the benefit of those who are listening to the podcast there were some very graphic images of criminals um, in swimsuits on a beach um, all of whom were wearing extraordinarily large blingy gold crucifixes mm. which was a rather sort of curious combination um, but that's the they're orthodox which... Christians, they're <laughs> Bulgarians, they love their gold. Yes, in, in my version of Christianity, all are supposed to be shoe material goods, but clearly not in their case. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the things that really interested people was the idea that you've written McMafia, you're close to some rather unsavoury types. And I just wanted to explore how you met these cyber criminals and indeed why they were prepared to talk to you. Well, first of all, I met people involved in traditional organised crime. That was quite easy because I was the BBC's correspondent in Central Europe at the time and I was covering the wars in Yugoslavia and the transitions in in Eastern Europe. And uh, what happened in Eastern Europe when the wall came down is is it it wasn't just the wall which collapsed. Um, For a um, temporary period... The state collapsed across Eastern Europe uh, as as well, and while it was on while it was on uh, life support, another big change was happening, and that was the shift from the planned economy to the um, victorious free market capitalist economy. Now, uh, if you look at Eastern Europe and particularly the former Soviet Union at that moment in 1989, 1990, 1991, because they've come out of single-party systems they don't and a planned economy they don't have any mechanisms uh, criminal justice or com- or commercial dispute mechanisms to regulate uh, disputes that emerge um, in the emerging market in the emerging market economy and so as a consequence if you were an aspiring entrepreneur in Russia in 1990-1991 and were doing a deal over buying and selling something uh, in order to ensure that you weren't ripped off or you weren't attacked or something like that you had to spend about 30% on your profits on what uh, sociologists refer to as privatized law enforcement agencies but we know more colloquially as the mob or the mafia and so Um, the free market economy, say what you will about the mafia, was absolutely dependent on them uh, uh, as it emerged in the early 1990s. So there were a lot of these people knocking around. I was in Yugoslavia where the mob was also hooked up with the paramilitaries fighting the war in the former Yugoslavia and with um, intelligence agencies, presidents, uh, oligarchic entrepreneurs and, and so on. 
And uh, <clears throat> by this time, I was a well-known character as the BBC correspondent. And basically, uh, they were part of my furniture and I was part of their furniture. And so I knew quite a lot of these people. And uh, that's how I started talking to them. But I then decided that it wasn't enough just to do stuff in the Balkans. I needed to see the emerging globalization of organized crime that had been um, triggered by 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 three things really one was one was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of those mobs. The second was um, the uh, rapid deregulation of uh, international financial systems and the emergence of the third one, which is globalization and faster trading patterns and so on. So organized crime is always very swift to adapt to shifting social and economic patterns. And it understood the value of globalization quicker than most um, the legitimate companies did. And so very quickly, you saw Russians who were still emerging from communism, having meetings on the um, Caribbean island of Aruba with gangsters from Colombia to arrange the smuggling of cocaine into uh, uh, into Europe. And I started following all of this, and I made friends with uh, some of them, or contacts. I mean, you know, they would take months and months and months before they'd agree to be interviewed by me. Um, but I went around the world, and I saw gangsters all around the world. And they were surprisingly um, sort of forthcoming. I mean, it takes it takes a long time to get them talking, but once they start talking, they're like all human beings. They just like talking about themselves. Um, and I made a policy decision that I wasn't going to sort of go after these people, accuse them of being, you know, murderers and uh, ruthless extortionists and exploiters and things like that. I wanted to ask them about how they got into the business, what their motivations were, what their parents did, where they went to school. I wanted to get a sense of the characters. And then I wove them all together into, uh, into McMafia. And it is up for the reader to decide what their morality is. It's not up for me to decide. I mean, I have my own opinions of it. But what I was interested in is what were the systems behind all of this that were enabling the globalization uh, of organized crime and the rise in political corruption? And also, if you look at the West, the rise in what I call facilitating institutions, some banks, hedge funds, the whole tax haven network, some lawyers, some Ben cops, some journalists, and, and so on who make up the entourage of a sort of corrupt oligarchic culture which is present in most countries. Fascinating. So, um, you did say that you thought that one of the developments, I think since the financial crisis, was the unification, if you like, of the old-fashioned criminal and the new cyber-criminal. Would that mean that if you were writing McMafia today, it would, it would differ? Um... I don't think it would differ in principle and in essence, but in terms of the sort of colour and some of the activities that would be, it would be different. We are at a pivotal moment now where um, uh, I think things are shifting decisively in favour of cyber. Even if you look at one of the traditionally most important areas of um, transnational organised crime, 
the uh, illegal narcotics market, um, <clears throat> that is democratizing and decentralizing at the moment. So increasingly, uh, young people in the United Kingdom, um, also elsewhere in Europe, the United States and Canada as well, purchase their narcotics off the dark net. Mm. And uh, the most popular and the most lucrative drug sold over the dark net in the United Kingdom is MDMA, ecstasy. It is not cocaine or marijuana or, or heroin, i.e. it is a synthetic drug, not an organic drug. And increasingly synthetic drugs are beginning to assume a greater volume in the, in the, in the market at the expense of organic drugs. Um, and the very interesting thing about that is is that up until now, the war on drugs, as we have pursued it for a, a, a hundred years, has been manageable in the West in as much that the real violence and nastiness of the war on drugs takes place in countries like Afghanistan or Colombia, where the narcotic is produced and where it's refined and then exported. Um, and here we have tended to be in a zone of consumption, which is much easier for a sophisticated police force to monitor, although even there they only pick up 20% of what's actually imported into this country. What happens with the dark net and the rise in synthetic drugs is, is that much of the production leaves Afghanistan and Colombia and comes here so that the uh, ecstasy capital of the world is North Brabant in the south of Holland. And uh, that is increasingly having a huge impact on the local economy in, in South Holland and in Holland in general. And police forces don't have the resources uh, to deal with the production and distribution as well as the consumption of drugs, which is one of the reasons you see um, uh, that uh, many countries are moving towards decriminalization and legalization of um, marijuana. This month, as we're speaking, uh, marijuana is going to be legal across the Federation of Canada in every single province. Uh, and this will have a huge impact on the uh, global narcotics economy. So there are big shifts as a consequence of uh, technology which are filtered through uh, various prisms which are not immediately uh, immediately obvious. Uh, but things are, are are changing in spectacular ways, and it's but it's extremely hard to try try and identify what the causal links between various various developments are. Right. So people listening will get a flavour of why this is quite scary. Um, we've talked about good and evil, and one thing that's really struck me is that we talk about globalization globalization of criminalization you put and people in colombia in touch with people from ukraine and so forth but at the same time you touched in the discussions earlier on the fact that for example the russians are very keen to prevent um, what i would think of maybe as good globalization the um, relationships between australia canada the us the uk and the eu in relation to um, how they uh, create constructs that protect the world 
from, from, from criminalisation. I was interested that you were very specific about the idea that people are trying to break down these unifications for good whilst creating um, globally bad networks. Mm. Do I take it from that that you think that the um, elections have been tampered with and that's a continuing trend and we should be taking that seriously? And then can you please shed light, sorry, there's two questions that's in one, right. on why <laughs> President Trump likes the Russians? Yes, okay. So, um, I, I think that uh, I would say that the uh, the Anglophone world and the Europeans in the first instance are looking to protect their interests rather than to protect the world. Um, sometimes they assist the world, sometimes they, sometimes they don't. Um, <clears throat> but I do see that uh, you have this um, paradoxical backlash, uh, and I think 2008, the financial crash, plays a very significant role in this, whereby globalization has seen some very serious uh, reverses, but there are all sorts of different types of globalization. Um, and uh, there has been a, a big political backlash against globalization that has assisted the Russians when it comes to uh, poking and encouraging uh, various political movements in the West. I consider Brexit to be one of those. We know very, we know one hundred percent that Putin, that Russia was financing part of the Front National's campaign, Marine Le Pen, uh, during the last uh, French uh, elections. Um, there is considerable evidence that Trump's businesses have benefited from injections of cash from. Um, various Russian instances, albeit through complex financial networks like banks in Cyprus, uh, companies in in Canada and and Panama, and uh, and of course he historically owes a lot of money to Deutsche Bank, which wants to see that money back. Um, so uh, that uh, fragmentation politically that we're seeing now is an understandable response to the damage wrought by the financial crash of, of, of 2008. It was a banking crisis. It wasn't an economic crisis. But the response of political instances to the banking crisis was to introduce austerity, which meant that ordinary taxpayers like me who had not benefited from the uh, huge profits made by banks up until 2008 were paying for those profits through, through austerity and increased taxes. So you get huge political tensions emerging after 2008, and that has... Uh, um, that has uh, reflected itself in this loss of confidence in political classes across the European Union. So you see both the rise of a Corbynite Labour and the rise of Brexit-supporting Tories. You see the Sweden Democrats, right-wing population. You have a crypto-fascist party in the German parliament, significant representation in the German parliament. But you've also seen... In the most recent Bavarian elections, you've seen the Greens win 30% of the votes in, in Bavarian towns, over 100,000 people in population, which is an immense turnaround in fortunes for, uh, um, for a, a political party like the Greens. So you've got huge changes going on that are leading to fragmentation, 
for the Russians, from a security point of view, this is just great because what they don't dealing like dealing with is a unified West. And so a West that is constantly squabbling within itself, among itself, and so on and so forth, is a real advantage to a Russia which has chronic economic and demographic problems uh, uh, which uh, which it's already feeling and will get worse in the in 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 the future but the downside of all of this is we have global problems which affect all of us uh, all of us um, and front of center of that is climate change global warming uh, and so on and we now have the most powerful political office in the world um, uh, inhabited by a climate change denier uh, and someone who's pulled the United States out of the Paris Accords. And uh, this is little short, in my opinion, he's, of catastrophic. He's not a denier anymore, but he says it's not humanly wrought. He's sort of, he doesn't care about it, like he doesn't care about anything else which doesn't go towards the Trump bank balance. That's the problem. And is that why he likes the Russians? He because, likes the Russians. He's in hot to them, well, there is uh, there are psychological reasons. I mean, you can see. Let's face it. You know, he 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 uh, insults Canada, um, the United States' single most important trading partner and a democracy which shares American values. He loves Putin. He never criticized Putin. He's turned into a great aficionado of uh, of Kim Jong Un. He. He believes that rogue elements may be responsible for the murder of um, uh, Khashoggi um, uh, because he can't bring himself to criticise MBS Mohammed bin Salman or um, any of the other the Saudi leadership. So he clearly has an affinity with uh, Duterte in Philippines. He's a big fan of. Who's you know who's basically a, a, a thug. Uh, so he loves these dictator types. He's less fond of democratic types, it would uh, it would appear. Um, and uh, so, I, I, um, you know, my 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 feeling is is that he is, um, you know, I'm, I I take the line that the, this man is a is a, a dangerous narcissist. Uh, I see him as an opportunist. I mean, Brazil is on the verge of electing somebody who is uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who is, um, you know, I mean, it makes makes Donald Trump look like Andy Pandy, frankly. Uh, Bolsonaro is the real thing. I mean, Trump is just an opportunist who's mean and narcissistic and likes to increase his bank balance. I mean, but... Unfortunately, he's in the most powerful political office in the world, and so that's bad news for all of us. But he's an individual. We're individuals. And so maybe if I can just, as we, 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 we stroll towards the end of our time, um, bring this back to us mm. and ourselves and personal responsibility. Um, Very I important. I wanted to ask you, do you have Alexa at home? And then I wanted to ask you what you think we um, individually can do um, to protect ourselves, our families, in, our businesses. In terms of cyber, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. There are simple lessons. First of all, if you have material, whether you're in a business or whether you're at home, uh, that you cannot afford other people to get hold of data that you can't get hold of it don't keep it on uh, a network that has access to the internet basically your crown jewel your crown jewels has to be secure uh, <clears throat> this is a fundamental rule of cybersecurity in businesses 
it's sometimes difficult for some businesses. I was talking about the media in my lecture earlier on that their business is the exchange of information, so it's very difficult for them to identify what their crown jewels are. Um, but that is a primary thing. Secondly, very simple things like emails. Treat emails as public documents, as though they were readable by everyone. And never write in an email anything that you wouldn't want to see on the front page of The Sun or The Express tomorrow morning. Um, so I uh, assume, I work on the assumption that my computers are hacked. So, so I do that accordingly. So if I'm doing a sensitive um, interview with someone and I have it on tape, I have uh, f several tape recorders which never access a computer. They are, I can only listen to them on that. And they stay in a safe, and that safe is, is pretty secure. So there are simple things you can do. And above all, there's this thing called online disinhib disinhibition effect that uh, I alluded to it a little in my talk, saying that we believe that our relationship with our computer is an intimate relationship. And this leads us to reveal things about ourselves, uh, for example, on social media, about the things we get up to, which we would never dream of telling a person face-to-face -face if we bumped into them on the street. And so you've got to try and moderate your behavior and understand that your computer is a publicly accessible device. And as long as you understand that, you should be, uh, you should be okay. You always have to use things like antivirus. You have to make sure you should all be using a password manager for your passwords. It's all pretty simple stuff. You should always automatically update software like your Windows software or your Mac software or whatever. Uh, and you can ward off 96, 97% of the things which are going to try and attack you if you do that. If somebody, a sophisticated hacker, decides that they want you specifically, it's very hard for you to do anything about it. But most of us aren't that interesting. Well, that's marvellous. Um, you've cheered me up enormously because um, as a woman who's probably not going to be quite so good as these things or quite so engaged because, frankly, they're all too aggressive and um, somebody who's always enjoyed paper and pen, these are very doable um, injunctions, actually um, codes and so forth. I thoroughly understand. But the most interesting idea to me, and I think this is something that everybody who's listening can share, is just wake up and see this thing as the public instrument it is rather than your dog. The FSB, the uh, um, new version of the KGB, has reverted to using pen and paper. I was going to refer to that because for Christmas, everyone can now ask for a fountain pen. So <laughs> let me thank you very much, Misha. Really fascinating um, to have a further taste of your thoughts on this subject um, in private, but very pleased to be sharing them with everybody. And um, if you'd like to learn more about cybersecurity or other hot topics such as fintech, Brexit and global trade, have a look at our thought leadership pages on the Clifford Chance website. We have our hubs, Talking Tech and the Brexit Hub. And um, you've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. So please stay tuned for some more coming soon on cliffordchance.com.